The Toyota MR2 sports car. Lexus, the result of our relentless pursuit of perfection. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Toyota. Let's go places. Two weeks ago, we kicked off a three-part series looking at an amazing new next-gen 2022 Tundra. We still have two more episodes to bring you exploring everything the latest model has to offer. But before we get to that, pop some popcorn and dust off your DVD player because today we've got another special cinematic episode of Toyota Untold, this time featuring the iconic Toyota 2000 GT and its starring role alongside a certain martini-loving British spy currently topping box office charts around the world. Following a conversation we had earlier this year with Craig Lieberman, original owner of Paul Walker's Gladiator Supra and vehicle consultant on the first two films of the Fast franchise, we start the conversation this week with the latest in another storied film franchise, one with a bit more prestige, if you will. Bond. James Bond. (laughs) Released last month, No Time to Die features the Toyota Land Cruiser and a not-so-subtle display of butt-kicking which led us to hit the nostalgia button and zoom backward to 1967, wherein the blockbuster hit, You Only Live Twice, the 2000 GT staked its claim as a contender for best all-time Bond car. In fact, it's arguably one of the most iconic cars of all time, even without Bond, as it's widely regarded as both the first collectible Japanese car and the first Japanese supercar. We've got three experts on hand for this lively trip down memory lane. Let's kick it into gear. So without further ado, This is Tyler. And I'm Kelsey, and this is Toyota Untold. Before we begin, let's meet our guests today. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Drew Eliezer. I'm a senior development engineer in the service parts and accessories development. Uh, I'm in charge of developing performance accessories under the TRD brand, uh, Lexus F-Sport brand and GR Sport brands uh, for uh, Toyota and Lexus vehicles. And uh, our our group uh, is a performance group and we develop projects like the TRD Camry, TRD Avalon, and uh, some of the TRD Pro trucks uh, that you see out there. Uh, So uh, we're a very performance-oriented group. My name is Derek Hadari. I am a development engineer with the uh, Service Parts and Accessories group. Uh, I am on the electrical side, so uh, I'm responsible for developing uh, most, if not all, of our electrical accessory products, as well as integrated electrical platforms. My name is Ross Sharphorn, and uh, I am a professional stunt driver for film and television. I've been doing it for about 15 years here in Los Angeles, and uh, I also am an instructor at a stunt driving school. It's called the Motion Picture Driving Clinic. And for 25 years, we've been the number one stunt driving school in the country. And uh, we're trying to keep that record alive. We're doing pretty well at it. And uh, I also coach at the Porsche Experience down in Carson. Um, so if you ever want to learn how to drive a 911, I can teach you. But yeah, it just means it all kind of boils down to uh, I've had a lot of seat time and um, you know, slid a lot of cars to marks. I've crashed a lot of cars. If you watch the show Animal Kingdom, you'll see a job I'm very proud of. Um, it's going to be the final episode of that show. You'll probably catch me in there. And I just recently got to double Rob Lowe on uh, 911 Lone Star doing a chase with a Tycon 911. That's our all-electric car. So that was a lot of fun. 
my hobby and kind of my passion in life is uh, discovering every car chase that's ever been shot. Um, that's what I talked to Tom and Chris about on uh, the show uh, James Bond Radio. So obviously the Bond movies are going to be very high on my list because they're the gold standard of action movies for the past 60 years here almost. Yeah, that's what leads us to the Toyota realm today is uh, Toyota's first supercar, right? The 2000 GT that featured in, uh, you know, uh, You Only Live Twice in 1967. For the 2000 GT, uh, to me, it's my all-time favorite Toyota uh, to just the styling of it, the layout. For me, it's it's a, a sports car in its purest form, and and it's uh, you know a car that I would love to work on someday, or or even just drive. It embodies what a Toyota sports car should be. My greatest influence from the 2000 GT would have to be its its styling and the 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 overall blueprint of what a sports car is an inline six engine which you know is one of the most smoothest running engines that that's that was ever engineered put into a platform that uh is sleek sexy and 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 outperforms you know any other cars of uh of, of other classes you know it's a dream car it's a poster car you Only Live Twice was the fifth entry in the James Bond franchise, following hot on the heels of Dr. No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. It was originally intended as Sean Connery's final time in the iconic role, although the producers later convinced him to return for Diamonds Are Forever, following a lukewarm reception to his replacement, George Lazenby. Wanting to give Connery a worthy send-off, they sent him to Japan, and being a James Bond movie, that meant they needed a cool Japanese car to showcase. Cut back to around 1965, 66, um, and Goldfinger and Thunderball had both come out in rapid succession, and it created Bond mania, right? Everybody went crazy for Bond in the mid-60s. It was at the height of its power in 66, and that's when they were deciding to do the, the next film, and they, did, they announced that it was going to be shot in Tokyo, in Japan. And so immediately car companies were then clamoring to get into the movie because you guys probably know the story of DB5 and how that infamously, how they didn't want to give them a car for the production. So they had to buy two that had to be returned to Aston Martin afterwards. But after Goldfinger, they never had to buy another car again. So by this point in 66, you know, every car company in the world wanted to feature their car in a Bond film. And so Toyota was you know, no different. And they, uh, they, you know, I'm sure we're at that point in the mid sixties, they're a lot like the Ford company of, uh, the mid sixties where they were just known for their commuter cars. And, uh, you know, they got great gas mileage and they'd get you to work, but they were just basically a form of conveyance. Like they weren't really lighting the world on fire with, uh, you know, their drivability when you had like the Toyo pet and basically just square boxes that got you from two, point A to point B. Um, they wanted to change their image a little bit. They wanted to uh, kind of spice up the brand a little bit and say, hey, we know how to build sports cars too. It was Japan's first supercar, right? They not only put Toyota on the map, but it also put uh, you know, Japanese car manufacturers on the map. You know, most, of, most of the West didn't really see Japan as true car builders. We tried that Toyo Pet naming convention when we came out and, you know, people would call us toy motors from the West back in the, in the sixties. So what that car did is it, is it truly put uh, the entire Japan industry on the map for, for building quality competitive cars. 
and Toyota especially um, at the time and even uh, going into today uh, was perceived as the most conservative of the Japanese car companies. And so they were really looking for a, a halo model to kind of improve their image. I don't know if it was Bond that you know initiated all that. I think they just kind of came to that on their own. But they said, let's make this 2000 GT. It became the first supercar offered by Toyota and like legitimately was, um, you know, very, you know, uh, powerful car. I believe it had what a two liter straight six. It had the, the triple carb with 148 horsepower. Um, that was plenty for the sixties, you know, um, that was, that was a lot of engine back then. So they basically, you know, said, Hey, they, they caught wind that the bond producers are eyeing Tokyo for their next port of call. And so they reached out to the producers, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, and they said, Hey, we have a, a vehicle for you. The, the bond did movies at the time. Certainly you always saw bond driving something like an Aston Martin. Uh, but, uh, for Toyota to be mentioned in the same breath, uh, was, was certainly, a, a nice for the public relations at the time. Yes, Bond helped, but I think it represented Japan. You know what I mean? It represented the the state of where Japan was technologically. And um, like you said, it didn't belong to Bond. He was along for the ride with the Japanese Secret Service. And uh, Aki was his, uh, you know, his opposite number in the Japanese Secret Service. So she was a kind of like a double O agent for Japan. And so she got like he got his Aston Martin with all the tricks and bells and whistles. She got her 2000 GT. So she represented everything that was, you know, forward thinking um, in Japan at that time, which, as you know, still to this day, we still look to Japan technologically because they always have they're the tip of the sword with technology. And that translates to with car technology as well. And that was one of the best handling, most powerful cars at the time and uh, could outrun pretty much anything on the road. And so I think that's that's what really captured the public's imagination more than even Bond. Bond was like a springboard to get it into the public eye and the public perception. Um, it definitely, you know, it's, it's kind of like the DeLorean. Like if the DeLorean would have never been in Back to the Future, would everyone really care about that car? I don't know. But since it was in Back to the Future, it, it catapulted it even, even higher to higher regard. So movies do help with that. But something tells me that in this case, even if it hadn't have been in a Bond movie, it would still be every bit the icon that it is today, just on its in its own right. Because, it, like I said, it it just represents everything that's technologically advanced in automotive, uh, sports car, and motoring in Japan in the late '60s. I think some cars comparable to those mile per hour uh, figures would be something like the um, uh, Pantera. De Tomasio, which I think had like 150 or 160 mile an hour top speed, which, you know, at, at the time, I mean, that's, that's, that's supercar status, which is exactly where the Japan's first supercar comes from. I mean, that car was incredibly fast for the time. It would be dang near the fastest Bond car of the 60s when it's, with its power to weight ratio. I think the only other car that could give it a run for its money, maybe like the DBS Aston Martin from On Her Majesty's Secret Service or the, the 69 Cougar. That was actually a straight-up muscle car from that same movie that came out two years later. In, in the West, I think uh, uh, the Shelby team won four championships or four, at least four races, which really established that, that name. I know that in more domestic racing uh, in Japan, they were up against vehicles like uh, the Prince Nissan R380, which was a true-to-be true to form race car it actually was the forerunner to the nissan skyline or the gtr 
So, I mean, it, it 100% was a, was a race car that, that it fared quite well in, I think, uh, in their, in, in one of the first races that they actually went up against, uh, the R3, uh, R380 actually won first place and, um, third place was, was the, uh, 2000 GT, which was quite impressive for a car, not necessarily built for racing. And the other thing to remember is that the, the car, uh, although it doesn't sound like a whole lot of power today, uh, had 148 horsepower from its motor and it only weighed, uh, less than 2,500 pounds. So from a power to rate ratio, it was actually uh, fairly competitive. So it, it definitely had the characteristics uh, to perform well on the track. The film director originally wanted to use an, another car like a Camaro, but uh, there was a he was a factory racing driver for Toyota, uh, convinced the uh, the director that a Japanese car should be used for for a film taking place in Japan. And again, no no brainer on that too because of, of what was available. And uh, they met with them. I'm not sure if it was at Toyota headquarters or what, but they showed them the car and they liked it very much. But um, the production designer, Ken Adam, and as well as some other people um, looked at the car and they said, well, we got one big problem is that it's very tight to get into. Okay. So just some context here. In the year 1967, the average height of a man in Japan was five foot six. Sean Connery, on the other hand, was six foot two. So the car wasn't really built with him in mind. It is quite uh, a compact car, especially when you see it in person. Uh, I know here in uh, in Plano, we had one in the lobby not too long ago uh, from our collection. And it's just amazing how small that car is. It, it, it's almost uh, on a mini scale compared to some of the cars uh, we, we see today. But I'm not that tall. I'm only 5'8", but uh, the I think I would have trouble fitting in that car. There's some uh, documentation that the design spec was built for, like the model they used for, for seating position was for someone who was 5'10". So... You know, not quite, not quite very tall. <laughs> and so the first thing they needed to do was chop the head off the car. They, they cut the roof off so that Sean Connery could fit into the vehicle. It's a one-off, you know, because they didn't make that car in a convertible. Um, and it didn't have a retractable roof. They literally just cut it off and, and put kind of a fake sort of a tonneau cover on the back. And it became a convertible version of the car, which is, I'm sure, even more highly sought after than the hardtop. It was basically a one-off car, uh, basically for uh, just for that film. Uh, so so I, I say one-off. It was actually there were actually two models that were two, built, yeah. yep. uh, but uh, they didn't have any retractable roof. They just had a tonneau cover to simulate a convertible roof, but it never actually. It didn't even have an actual roof on it. I think there was only ever one Targa. Uh, original concept did show a Targa for that vehicle, and they didn't actually make. They didn't. Someone commissioned to make it close to the renderings back in 1987. So well after it was already discontinued. So I thought that was pretty much. So a target top is uh, fixed front and rear. It doesn't actually retract as a true like canvas or hard top convertible. It's a bit, think of it as a, as a Corvette. Um, those Corvettes that have the removable roofs or even the Supra actually, the Supra has a, has a Targa where the A-frame is, is, is fixed and the, and the B-pillar is also fixed. Uh, and then there's just a top that, that can be popped off. Cheap top without the middle bar. And I'm pretty sure that's why they had the Bond girl driving the entire time was because he probably could not drive the car with his knees hitting the steering wheels. They just go, well, we got to do what we got to do. So let's have him ride shotgun. And uh, I want to say besides for a short scene in a blue Mustang and Thunderball, that was the first time, you know, that we saw, you know, the Bond girl just kind of taking the reins and driving while 
Bond was a passenger, you know. It says a lot about the machine and a lot about the car that the 2000 GT, you know, created such a wave and, and such a ripple effect based off of that two and a half minutes or whatever that it's featured in this film. Because it's not like it goes from beginning to end in the entire film. It's just a quick car chase at the beginning and then driving around Tokyo a little bit, you know, through the neon lights and everything uh, after that. And so it's like, wow, like, you know, even the uh, the Supra that's featured in the first Fast and Furious, the orange one, that was featured for an even longer time and had an even more part in the story than this car did. But yet this car is more famous than that car. You know what I mean? You could line the two cars up next to each other. I guarantee you half the people in the room won't even know the orange car, but they know the SGT from Bond. So it really says a lot about the, the vehicle itself and about Bond as well being a great promotional tool. They cut the top off and uh, had the, the car finished within a matter of days uh, for the filming. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was it was from start to finish back in film in two weeks, which is an incredible turnaround time. This is only my opinion, guys, but it is kind of a crime that they had to cut the roof off because I really like the look of the hard top. I think it is actually even adds even more to that car, makes it even cooler. Um, but I get, you know, for the logistical reasons why they get it. Um, and it is cool to see it in a chop top. Like Rouse just said, the 2000 GT doesn't just hold its place in pop culture because of what's under the hood. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more beautiful design. The Porsche 911 and the B-Type both were benchmark vehicles for the 2000 GT. Comparing them, I think, mostly in, in uh, you know, the E-Type compared compared mostly in styling, but the uh, the portion performance, that was their benchmark target. Is that, is that what you know, Drew? Uh, yeah, certainly the, the E-Type, uh, the styling draws a lot of uh, influence uh, from that uh, that design. But uh, uh, yeah, obviously with the Porsche being mid-engined, uh, it, it, there are some different performance characteristics, but yeah, Toyota was really looking to make a statement. And they even took it uh, racing uh, for a few years with uh, Carol Shelby, uh, the 2000 GT pulled a lot of styling cues from the Jaguar, obviously, but deep down, it actually had more common structural design with the Lotus Elan. Uh, it was an X-chassis, which was you know, more what the Lotus would do. It had, the, had an X-brace where the, the frame was in an X-configuration, an engine up front, the rear diff in the rear, uh, rear of the AX, and then seat, seating positions was on the left and right of that of that um, uh, cross point on the X. So very, very unique design. I don't actually know of any car that, that utilizes that kind of structure today. Even. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it looks fast just sitting there. And uh, that's true. You look at that car. I saw it once in person. Uh, I saw one of them. It was at the Detroit auto show in the white color. I don't know if it was pearl white or what the white color was, but it was the hatchback. It was the, the hard top. And I just stood there for like a half an hour, just admiring the car and taking tons of pictures of it and just going like the dashboard kind of wraps around you, kind of like the cockpit on a plane and like just everything about the ergonomics of it was very, very cool. And it's very eye catching, you know, so I could see why the Bond producers, like, it was a no brainer while they're just like, oh, yeah, I mean, look at this. thing. So it has very uh, clean lines uh, uh, for, for the day. There's a lot of influence from the Jaguar E-Type. The designer, uh, Satori Nozaki, was very clear in his gestures about uh, making it a, a cleanly styled vehicle. Some that say that Albert Goetz, who uh, designed some BMWs, had some influence on the styling. But uh, he may have been called in in some of the early meetings, but uh, the styling was certainly done uh, in-house by Nozaki-san. 
One thing that really helps to set the Toyota 2000 GT apart is that it was also created in collaboration with Yamaha. Yamaha approached the idea of wanting to do a K-class car and having these sleek, sleek long hood, fastback cars. Albert was, was part of that discussion and, and kind of designed the, the, the concepts for the 1500, which was the Sylvia. And then I don't know how much you guys are aware of this, but the car was heavily influenced by uh, Yamaha's own design that they did with Nissan, the Project A550X, which, you know, it's not actually, there's no, they don't really share much in common except when Yamaha said, hey, I can make this, we, you know, we, we want to sell this A55X that Nissan doesn't want. Are you interested? What Toyota saw was that Yamaha's commitment to that quality and, and, and design capability. Toyota said, you know, it seems like Yamaha has, has the ability to, to partner up with us and make our design concept come to life. And that's when the 2000 GT was, was realized. So not necessarily a sister car to the A550X, but more of a, hey, we can come together and, and, and make the, our dreams happen. So there was definitely heavy influence there. Toyota and Yamaha have a very long history uh, of a technical partnership and, and co-developing uh, some uh, engines and motors together. Over the years, uh, some of the iconic Toyota motors like the, the 2JZ, the 3S GTE uh, four-cylinder, even the, uh, the UR motors that are used in the ISF and RCF today had a lot of work done by Yamaha. The V10 and the Lexus LFA was also done with uh, Yamaha's technical assistance uh, with its development. So uh, Yamaha is, is certainly known as a, a motor specialist, especially for the on the performance side. And uh, this was uh, at the very beginning of that uh, relationship between Toyota and Yamaha. And I believe to this day, Toyota still has a minority uh, ownership interest stake in Yamaha. There's definitely a, a lot of influence from the Yamaha sector into uh, or Yamaha's uh, in, um uh, expertise in uh, in Toyota. So, Drew, did did they do the sound tuning on the LFA? Was that what it was? The exhaust sound tuning? I believe that that was some of it. Uh, a lot of it was also just the basic um, uh, cylinder head development and uh, mm-hmm. uh, helping to get the the motor to to rev as high as possible. Uh, so, as they did with the the two two ZZ back in the day with the, that four cylinder. Yeah. Which, which, if you think about it, that's what the LFA is known for, right? It's it's incredible high revs and sound. So, you know, Yamaha being a partnership with that really shows their their technical prowess. But the, the base motor in uh, that was in the 2000 GT was uh, the 3M uh, motor, and that that M series engine uh, continued on for many many years, as as late as I think the early late 90s and early 2000s. So that uh, the M series the inline six cylinder was in the Supra from, I think, from the first generation all the way through the the third generation Supra till the uh, the early nineties. Uh, where where uh, by that point it was a seven M and uh, it became a turbocharged motor, and that that M motor eventually yielded the the JZ motor, uh, which is very iconic with the the A eighty Supra. The car only appears briefly in You Only Live Twice, most notably during the movie's car chase sequence. Despite only accounting for a few minutes of screen time, it remains one of the most memorable parts of the movie. 
The double for Sean Connery was uh, Bob Simmons, who was his most famous stunt double of all time. Bob Simmons, he's the guy that was originally in The Gun Barrel, as you know, in the first uh, three Bond movies. And so he was doubling Connery, shooting his wall throughout the back over the trunk lid, while Aki, our uh, brave Bond girl in the movie, was actually being doubled by a man named Peter Brace. Because Aki, uh, the, the actress playing her, did not actually know how to drive a car. Um, so all of her shots were done on a rear projection screen while Mr. Peter Brace in full regalia and full wig was out there uh, shaving the, the bumpers and driving on the streets. So, um, yeah, it's a fun chase. Uh, you know, Bond gets shot at at uh, the, uh, the Osato headquarters and uh, they, they bail and Aki helps him out. She's driving away. They got a Toyo pet chasing them fully loaded with uh, the gunman in the black sedan you know the trope of the bond movies and they're saved by a uh, a big chinook helicopter that comes down with a giant magnet and uh attaches to the villain car and basically they're up up and away and uh they drop them in tokyo bay and that's how the chase ends but um as far as the uh the 2000 gt I just I find it laughable that they even needed the helicopter because that car would have outrun that Toyo pet in its sleep. But also um, it just looked good, you know, sliding around corners. And it had one of the world's first vision phones equipped in the back. A vision phone. I mean, that's just like what we have on our iPhones, right? It's like FaceTime. It's like the world's first FaceTime. They had a, uh, a closed circuit camera looking at them and then a small mini TV screen in there. And it essentially was a vision phone. And that was like one of the first times anyone had ever seen one of those. And it was mobile. It was a mobile phone in the back of a car. People in the 60s thought that was amazing. I mean, 2021, we look at that and go, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. You know, look at us. Mm-hmm. We're talking on, so we're doing vision phone right now on Zoom. But uh, back in 66, 67, uh, that was pretty sweet technology that didn't really exist yet. So Bond's always been about 20 years ahead of its time. Um, of course, it was all smoke and mirrors. It was all movie magic, but uh, it looked really convincing and really cool. Uh, so it was it was a very memorable Bond car for sure. For me, it, it, it's my favorite Bond car. I, I know I work for Toyota, but it, it, to me, you know, obviously that for Bond cars, the Aston Martin it is the first thing that comes to most folks' mind. But I just think the 2000 G just stands out there among all the others just because it it's so different than anything else that Bond has ever driven except for maybe the uh, the car that got split in half and uh, a view to a kill. But <laughs> the, um, yeah, <laughs> hands down for me, that the 2000 GT is my favorite Bond car. I'm a pretty big Bond fan myself. I, I have to say that the 2000 GT, unfortunately, is not my top favorite car. It is my second favorite. I, I am the Aston Martin DB5 fan. Uh, I grew up watching Aston, or uh, grew up watching uh, James Bond and, and the best car was was you know when when sean was driving that car around on the twisties and and it just had that sound and because that i saw that before i saw the 2000 gt it just held held a special place in in my heart but you know looking at the at the at the the scenes where the 2000 gt was in it, it was definitely a second second place for me honestly it makes a lot of people's lists it makes a lot of like top five lists of bond cars and it was in the movie for such a short time but to, you know, be remembered as it is and as fondly as it is really says a lot. Those of you who remember our Fast and the Furious episode where we spoke to the owner of that movie's iconic Supra will also remember how, for films like this, there are multiple copies of each car sourced and produced and given different roles to play when you're making a movie. 
there's always the hero car and then there's always a, a chase car. And I think it was unique in this movie that there really wasn't a chase car. It was the only feature car, if I don't, if I recall correctly. So I think that's pretty unique for the Bond films. I want to say there was one. I want to say there was only one car that they chopped the roof off for. Stunt driving was still, believe it or not, kind of in, a, in its infancy back then. So this was the year before they did the movie Bullet. The movie Bullet with Steve McQueen is really sort of where the car chase got revolutionized in that they shot the entire thing for real out on the street and camera technology changed so that they had these airy flex cameras that got very, very small and compact so they could load them onto the cars without adding a lot of whole lot of weight to the car. So that was the first chase where they said, this is going to be done for real. So they couldn't break a shock absorber. They couldn't pop a tire. They couldn't do anything like that, you know, on the day. So they reinforced the shocks. They put KYB shocks on the on the Mustang and on the Charger, and it was all done for real. Whereas um, there's a lot of rear projection that's done um, in the times before that. That was, you know, a lot of Elvis Presley movies used it back in the day, where they just put the actor on a stage and blow some wind through their hair, and you know, it was super, you know, chintzy. And they use a lot of that. And you only live twice. So, you know, it was it was basically like, you know, they didn't modify the cars at all because, you know, they didn't have that technology to do so. They just they had to shoot. So they just put them in the car, did what the car could do and then put them on the stage and got everything else. Whereas after Bullet, they said, OK, we're going to actually make these cars out there dancing around. Then the actors are actually going to be there on the set in the car, like getting the real chase. And so that's what kind of, you know, changed the zeitgeist a little bit. And so everyone started doing that after. So as you know, this was the year before that. So this is kind of like the last sort of thing where it was like, look, we just, you know, Toyota delivered us this car. We're going to use it and see what it can do. But there was no modifications, not because it was a choice, just because they had to shoot. And you know what I mean? They, they probably didn't need to soup it up, you know, for one, but then it was just, uh, you know, budgetary thing and, and a time thing where they, they didn't have the option yeah. to have 10 cars. They just had the one. It's so like generational. Yeah. They had one to use. They'd go out and just drive it on the street and then they'd bring it into the studio and rock it around and put a little rear projection behind Sean Connery and uh, the lead actress and they'd make it look like they're out on the street. If you uh, were to go on set on a modern day feature like a Fast and Furious, let's say, for one scene, you'd have 10 versions of that car. Yeah. So like if a car's in a chase sequence and let's say like the new Bond movie in No Time to Die, got that great chase uh, with the Aston Martin in Matera, it's sliding, it's jumping, it's sliding, it's doing all these things. You'd have a car for each individual thing that it did. So like the car that does the donuts, that was a certain car. The car that does the drifting, that was another one. Um, the car that just pulls up and does the beauty shot and very slow and the actors get out, that was another car. Um, the car that has the gadgets that actually protrude out of it, that was another one. And so, and then you got a pod car that's a pod that's sitting on top of the stunt drivers on the roof, driving by wire. The actors are sitting inside acting. That's another one. So you'd have all these different versions of these vehicles just to make it look like it's one car. So that would make the most sense is if they had two, they'd have a stunt car. And so if anything went wrong, they blew a tire or if anything broke on the car, they'd have a backup. And then the second car would probably be for the actors and for the beauty shots that they did on the stage. For those of you who want to hear more about The Fast and the Furious and haven't heard our Craig Lieberman episode, go back and check it out now. It's available wherever you're listening to this. It's called Fast and Famous Cinema's Most Recognizable Supra. 
You guessed it, Ross's background overlaps with the Fast and Furious cinematic universe too. He shares some great tidbits about early special effects and connects the dots between our two movie-going supercars. I worked on part four, and uh, we did the land train sequence. And um, so it was basically the tanker trucks, and they were stealing the fuel. And um, the trucks, the the um, Chevy, the old Chevy pickups that were modified to tow the fuel trailers, there was about seven of each truck. So like I said, there'd be one for sliding, there'd be one for driving in reverse. Same thing with uh, Dom's GNX uh, Buick that he had, as there was like seven different versions of that. My favorite one of that was how we made the car look like it was driving in reverse at 70 miles per hour. We actually took the body off the frame and reversed it and put it back down on there. So the stunt driver sat in the back seat looking out over the trunk lid with his steering and his brakes. The engine was in the trunk. And then uh, the front wheels were actually the back wheels and the rear differential. And uh, so, yeah, it was pretty, pretty interesting. And if you look, the, the back wheels actually steer and the front wheels stay static. But like I said, since it's going in a straight line, you can't really tell. Um, but that, that was first invented on the movie Hooper in 1978. They made uh, Burt Reynolds, as playing a stuntman, look like he was going in reverse at 70 miles an hour as a pickup truck. And uh, so that was, uh, I think we have all uh, Hal Needham to thank for that guy. But uh, it's pretty convincing on film. You know, another fun one is uh, if you guys ever watched the movie The Town, it's with uh, Ben Affleck and he's a bank robber in Boston. I worked a little bit on that movie as well in the picture car department. And uh, what we had was the minivans for the heist were these Dodge caravans. And Dodge caravans are, you know, uh, they don't have the most powerful engine. It's like a four or six cylinder engine and a front wheel drive, you know, powertrain. What we did to make the chases more exciting is we swapped those out for rear wheel drive V8s. So if you look really closely, when you see that chase, they slide around a corner and then they light up the rear wheels as they're driving into an alley. And it's like, there's no rear wheel drive Dodge Caravans out there. But uh, it definitely made it easier for the stunt drivers to have more power to throw the car into the moves that it needed to make. But the interesting part about going cycling back to our Bond movie in our 2000 GT is, as you know, they didn't need to modify the car like that um, for the chase scenes in this movie because it already had rear-wheel drive and, like I said, had plenty of power um, with the engine and the platform that it already was offering. So it was just besides you know, chopping the roof off, no real modifications were made to the uh, 2000 GT. And then, you know, it became iconic from that point on, you know what I mean? And fast forward to 2001, one of the cars featured in the first Fast and Furious, right? I always think back to uh, You Only Live Twice and the original car. And, and there were many people, you know, regular customers, after they saw the movie, were wondering who built that car that was in that movie. <laughs> and because of that, you know, it actually did attract people to go to the, the dealers because they wanted to see, hey, do you have this car that was in that movie? And, and you know, it's a, it's a it's great product placement to, to bring people into the showrooms. The promotional push of having a Toyota vehicle stealing the show in a James Bond movie did wonders for the company's image, but it wasn't enough to turn things around immediately. Their profit wasn't wasn't really that high, uh, partly due to the the number of sales weren't really extravagant because obviously you know before this car, uh, Japan wasn't really viewed as a as a competitor when it comes to to most cars, including sports cars. But you know I think there was 350 made 
uh, over the, the life of the vehicle from 67 to uh, 70. There's only 350 of them made. And so, you know, obviously that's not going to be a large profit, even, even disregarding the high price tag for the time. I think it was like $6,500 and in 60s, 60s dollars, that was uh, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and today's dollars, it would uh, probably translate into something more like uh, just over $50,000, which, you know, for a, a Japanese, any Japanese car at the time was quite expensive. It was probably even more expensive than some Porsches and Jaguars of the same era. Yep, absolutely. So I think part of that that design characteristics that they pointed out was, you know, high quality would take precedence over high volume. Uh, so I think they're, they're, they did anticipate, we, we did anticipate not having a high volume. And I, I believe these were, these were, you know, meticulously put together. So I think, whereas we're pretty known for high mass production, I, I think these did not have that. I think they were mostly handmade. Correct. Yeah. These, these cars were, were effectively hand built and, you know, you just can't make that many uh, vehicles using a hand-built uh, type process. So I, I don't think there is uh, an appetite to keep a, a high-volume, expensive vehicle like uh, that around for too long. Uh, I will say that, you know, later on, it, it did inspire Toyota to build uh, more value-priced sports cars that were more approachable for the everyday customer later on. So uh, it, it certainly begat, uh, you know, Cars like the Celica and the Supra later on, that that at a price point where uh, more normal customers would be able to afford them, so it it, it certainly serves its purpose as to making the initial halo statements. Hey, we're Toyota; we can also do sports cars, and then Toyota followed that up by bringing the more affordable cars uh, to market. Uh, it really is amazing how movies can catapult something like that and make it valuable. Um, but like I said, you know, th- again, just in my opinion only is I think the 2000 GT would be sought after regardless if it was in a Bond film or not, because it was such an important car to not only Toyota, but to Japan as a country to just say, here we are, you know, we can compete in the sports car arena with you guys and, and do it very well and do it with high, like an Aston Martin or like a Corvette or like a Ferrari or something like that. These cars from different car companies from different countries that say this is our kind of take on the sports car this is our our chariot this is how we do fast and you know good handling cars and and, and really you know the sports car is not meant just for fun it's meant to show you where a company is technologically you know what i mean and so i think that's the same statement that the uh, 2000 gt was trying to make in the late 60s and they definitely accomplished that for sure. And so having Bond was just, you know, a bonus to kind of say, hey, here we are, check out our car. And now everybody knows about that vehicle. I, I believe it's the first Japanese uh, car that to eclipse the uh, $1 million dollar, uh, auction sale price. Uh, so hopefully that'll it'll continue to appreciate. Maybe not uh, quite to what the Ferraris have, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's certainly rare enough that... Uh, the collectors have, have recognized its value. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, there was two that were over the past five years. One of them was right at around uh, 800,000. 800, and then, and then they, uh, the second one right after, I think one point, was it 1.2 or 1.4? It was a pretty impressive number. So just how rare is the 2000 GT? If you're a collector, how many of these cars are out there to buy? 351 is the official number. I know that, uh, I know they're in short supply. But I don't. I don't know how many are still around. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I heard a very unfortunate story about the the demise of one of the uh, models that there was a gentleman in Japan that was on a just a driving tour and driving his 2000 GT out in uh, on some mountain road. And fortunately, nobody was hurt, but uh, he had left it by the side of the road and um, unfortunately, a tree fell on it and Oof. crushed it. So, uh, but uh, you hate to hear of a, a rare car like that being <laughs> destroyed, but unfortunately, that's how one of them met its fate. We actually, I think, Drew, maybe you know this, but I think we have two hard tops and one convertible in our repertoire, I guess, in our museums. Is that right? Yeah, that, yeah. Toyota owns at least uh, two of the hard tops. I haven't seen the convertible myself, but uh, in uh, Toyota's uh, company collection in North America, yeah, there there are at least uh, two hard tops, uh, one white and one red, I believe. Yep. yep. And at one point, uh, the museum, when it was still back in California, they may have been holding it for a, a private customer, but uh, they did have that uh, that greenish colored one, but I believe that was a, a restoration for a private customer. And unfortunately, I don't know if they if the if the one if the other convertible is you know, where that one is. One of them's owned by Toyota, and I think the other one is stuck in Hollywood somewhere, isn't it? On a in the Bond Museum. I, my very first day uh, working with Toyota was walking into that headquarters, and the one car that was there was the white 2000 GT. And it was on the day of my orientation. And I, I legitimately feel like I, I had geeked out a little bit too much because <laughs> I was the only one in the orientation there taking selfies and pictures of the car and just just totally going, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Uh, so I, I, I always thought that was kind of a well, this is a start off. This is a great start to a to a lovely career. <laughs> I was actually, um, I, I, I know one of the curators in our, in our Heritage Museum on, on campus, and I actually got to see a service manual of the 2000 GT, the actual, like, true you know, maintenance and repair manual that, uh, that, we, that we publish for, for uh, Texas, uh, technicians and, and dealerships. And me being a technician before, before becoming an engineer for Toyota, you know, I've seen the big, thick, two, 300-page manuals for, for some of the current model vehicles. Uh, this one was like maybe 20 pages, <laughs> 50 pages at the most. It's incredible how how much information was needed then and versus now for for working on these things. Yeah, yeah that, that's amazing. And along those lines, um, if you ever have a chance to go to Japan uh, in Toyota's MegaWeb show, showroom uh, close to Tokyo, they have what they call a heritage restoration garage. And basically, it, it, it's exactly as it, as it sounds. That they have a garage that's it's on display, so you know they have like a plexiglass window, but they have technicians who are restoring cars like a two like two thousand GTs or you know S S six hundred S eight hundreds like in 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 the shop, and you can watch them as they're going through the whole restoration process. And I happened to be there one day, and I was watching them, and the technician saw that you know me and my friend were watching. He and he's like he he goes he goes around and he opens the door. And he's like. Come on back. I'll, I'll show you what I'm working on. And you know, he, he didn't speak a whole lot of English, but you know, I speak a little bit of Japanese. But he was basically you know showing us what he was doing, and he was telling us a little bit about his story. And he himself worked on the original development of the 2000 GT, so he was intimately familiar with the 2000 GT's design, and like so, he knew all the things that you know to, to look at, and you know what needed to be uh, you know 
repaired or, or, or remedied. Uh, but uh, it was just a really cool experience just seeing someone who had history with the project getting their hands dirty, you know, just uh, you know, keeping, keeping the dream alive. That's incredible. The 2000 GT um, influenced a lot of, you know, the sports cars of today that Toyota used, right? That's, that's kind of, it, it, it's, it's very obvious that the, even not only the sty- styling influence, but just the, the idea that Toyota would make a, a world beater. Cause that was the initial concept for the 2000 GT. I mean, if you look at, I think there was the five, five basic characteristics that, that Toyota set out to, to kind of target high performance sports car would be a, a, a manageable car on the street. It would have the high quality that would you know, be influenced by Toyota's mantra, you know, high quality always. It would have a, a good GT class feel. So Grand Touring would be its, its main focus for category. And then, of course, the, as, as Toyota tradition, it also needed to meet all regulatory standards for export. So that's kind of uh, a definite influence. If you look at now in, you know, both Drew and I are, are, are in the uh, development uh, sector of, of Toyota where we do a lot of engineering uh, in the in the in, into some of our our parts of vehicles, so we we kind of hold true with, you know, where we have our our design specs and our our mantras that we're our, our characteristics that we're looking for, and you know you can see the influence of Toyota's uh, of the past into all of our all of our parts and cars in the future. So it's it's pretty neat. You you definitely know that that's that all comes from somewhere, and part of that is that 2000 GT. And along those lines, uh, I, I find it cool that a lot of Toyota Toyota's cars, sports cars today, uh, such as the 86 or the Supra, uh, still have an homage or gesture towards uh, the original uh, 2000 GT's uh, styling cues, especially that three-quarter window. If you look mm-hmm. at an 86 or a Supra, you can see oh, they, they, they just wanted to give a shout-out to the original 2000 GT with, uh, with some of those uh, styling gestures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the things I cherish most about Toyota is the fact that uh, we have pride in everything we've done, not just in everything that we do. The car's legacy is quite amazing, and it doesn't just stop with influencing cars today and holding a place in movie history. The 2000 GT also remains one of the most popular toy cars around. I mean, you just look at the proportions of it, and it's got that you know low, long hood, and and just those proportions, it, it, it's an it's an instant classic. And uh, you mentioned the Matchbox cars. I happened to be at the supermarket uh-huh. one day, and you know I, I have young kids, and sometimes they, they like to look at the cars. And I, you know while they were looking at, at some of the cars lower in the shelf, uh, there's one that happened to caught my eye, and it was a 2000 G. Sure enough, and uh, let's just say I, I slid that one into the shopping basket. And <laughs> well, let's 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 not let's not sugarcoat this, uh, Drew. I, I've been by your desk and I've seen your collectibles, and my favorite one is of your 2000 GT that you that you displayed. Uh, it's it's beautiful. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Ho- hopefully, no no one still stole it off my desk yet. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, I'm I was a big Hot Wheels collector myself. Uh, still am, hundred uh, percent. Uh, this this is a podcast, so me showing you my my collection isn't going to do anyone any justice. But out of out of any of the car collectors or all of the collectibles, I, I would think that the uh, the 2000 GT is is probably going to be the best one to show off because as Drew mentioned, the, the, the styling cues, the lines, I mean, it, there's been a lot of uh, automotive journalists that have pointed to the E-Type being, you know, the, the classic uh, sexy car. Uh, but if you compare the 2000 GT and the E-Type, I mean, 
the 2000 GT just has, it, it's just a better version of the E-Type. <laughs> I know the enthusiasts in the company would, would love to see it back, uh, but I think it's more of a matter of a business case. But if you look at the formula for the Supra today, I mean, you've got this small coupe with a, a inline six motor that's, that's really powerful. I think the spirit lives on in, in, in today's Supra. Um, that being said, uh, I believe there is a gentleman in Japan who has taken it upon himself to hand build uh, uh, kind of a, not a resto mod, but a modern 2000 GT. And he used a 2JZ motor and some parts out of a, a, a Toyota Altezza, which is like a, a Lexus IS300. And he's built a running modern 2000 GT with, with a more modern drivetrain and powertrain. It's, re, it's very cool. But uh, uh, And what's cool about that one is that you know, he doesn't have, it's built out of more modern parts. So if something happens to it, he doesn't have to worry about, you know, damaging or, or, or wrecking a million dollar car. I'm sure it's still not cheap, but it's not a million dollars expensive. But uh, I just thought that was cool. And, you know, if uh, I save up enough money, maybe I'll, I'll put in an order for another one myself just to be able to drive something that looks like a 2000 GT, but maybe not necessarily isn't the real thing. It really is a cool car, and, and like I said, I'm not lying when I said that it would be in the top five Bond cars of mine of all time, for sure, just just off of looks alone. You could just park it next to anything, and that one's going to always catch your eye. You know, it's just a very, very cool car. And like I said, with Bond, as with the 2000 GT, it's, uh, it's all about being ahead of its time, and that car was about 10 or 15 years ahead of its time. And so that's why it was just really cool to see that. People looked at that in 67 and they went, what is that? Like that's that's gotta be a prototype because that's not like anything I've ever seen on the road. And that's what's the coolest part of Bond movies. So that this was just one of those cars that just, you know, it looked like the future driving down the road. It's a thrill to see that Toyota's been leaving its mark in Hollywood for over 50 years now, and it's easy to see why the 2000 GT still holds such a special place in people's hearts. And from a special place in our hearts, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) This has been another episode of Toyota Untold. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Tyler. See you next time. Make sure you're following the show on whatever podcast platform you use because next episode, we'll be getting back to our special run of the 2022 Tundra episodes showcasing our new truck. This podcast is brought to you by Toyota Motor Sales USA Incorporated and may not be reproduced or redistributed in whole or in part without prior permission of Toyota. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and our hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota. Please note that Toyota is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved worldwide. A reminder that modifying your vehicles with non-genuine Toyota parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. Other trademarks and trade names appearing on the vehicles are those of their respective owners. 